Thanks for joining us for another episode of What the Faith. We had a really great conversation with Erin S. Lane. She's the author of Lessons in Belonging from a Churchgoing Commitment Phobe and a co-editor of Talking Taboo, American Christian Woman Get Frank About Faith. She was raised Catholic, a former evangelical, and a trained Quaker. She's now married to a Methodist and lives in Raleigh, North Carolina with her improbable kin. If you want to learn more about her, Offscript Spirituality for the Childless, Child-Free, and Unlikely Families, you should sign up for her newsletter. It's Good For You News, and you can find that at AaronSLane.com. We hope you enjoy the episode. Faith started in the Catholic Church, and really early, faith started getting my first communion two years early. So it's traditional in the Catholic church to get your communion around the age of seven, which is about second grade for most kids. My brother got his around then. I was infinitely jealous. It looked like a little mini marriage ceremony with the kiddos walking down the aisle two by two in white to receive a piece of God's body and blood. And I was fascinated. So I convinced my mom that I was ready for it at the age of five, that I sort of got enough theologically. I don't know what I was thinking, but I knew I was thinking that the big and the church was big enough to make room for exceptions. And that principle really has guided the rest of my Christian faith, that the church is big enough to make room for exceptions. And so if there was ever a place that I came across um, in scripture that was confusing or a place that I came across in my body that was confusing or a place that I came across in my life story that was confusing. It didn't mean that I was outside the bounds of God's love. It meant that maybe the bounds could be stretched and understood differently. So we know that you're coming out with a new book and you've already written a book um, about just church phobia in general. Maybe you could kind of just walk us through what's been of your interest recently and what sparked your interest about your upcoming book. Yeah, I love that phrase, church phobia. My book's about commitment phobia, but church phobia, I think, is also a very real thing um, and is very much tied to commitment phobia. So I think you should trademark church phobia. Um, Yes, so I am a writer. Um, That's my main gig. Um, The first book I ever did was an anthology called Talking Taboo, American Christian Women Get Frank About Faith, and it felt like this wonderful midwifery whereby there were 40 stories of 40 American Christian women talking about what they wish the church were talking more about. Um, And it was in that book that I edited, but also had an essay in that I wrote for the first time about being married without children that felt like this very gray space that no one had ever talked to me about. Again, the messages I got really early on were either you become a mother or you become mother superior. So either you marry a man and naturally have babies or you marry the church and remain chaste. And there was no talk of a middle ground of being married, but choosing not to have children or choosing to have children in more unconventional ways. And so it was really that essay that was kind of an early impetus for the book I'm currently working on, on the influence of American Christianity on women that don't have want or center children of their own. 
And I think it's also tied to the book you mentioned, um, my second book that was more memoir-ish, Lessons in Belonging from a Church-Going Commitment Phone. This idea that belonging to the church, which used to be automatic for many people, um, I think in like medieval Europe, like if you were a citizen of that town, you were considered to be a member of the church. Like it was just part and parcel of being a human in a lot of the areas of this world that were dominated by Christianity. And so for millennials, which is sort of the generation I find myself in, for the first time to be really questioning whether or not religious affiliation was something that served them and something that served the world. And everyone was freaking out about it. Um, so much of what makes the church inhospitable, I think, to millennials and younger people is its confusion about their families and what their family life looks like, um, is inhospitality. Um, to chosen families and same-sex families and families that simply look different than the picture a lot of people grew up expecting that they had to fit. Um, and so really this new book, which is um, loosely on what I call off-script mothering, is really a desire to kind of take that first book, Talking Taboo, and the second book, Lessons in Belonging, and sort of put it together and say, how have these narratives that we've gotten from American culture, Christian culture, and more broadly to some of the, the more broadly spiritual messages we've gotten about children and family, how have those impacted people that are making family in untraditional ways? Could you kind of go a little bit deeper into your personal journey with, um, you know, being married and not having children and what that looks like for you? Yeah. So if you couldn't tell from the first story, I was a pretty fervent child. Um, my, my dreams were of being like the liturgist at church and doing a bang up job reading scripture aloud. Um, later that expanded to reading audiobooks. I thought, one could make a living doing that. I didn't realize you also usually needed to have written the books, but no matter. Um, I really was crazy about God and, and felt like this God of the universe lived in me and was animating me. Um, partly that was because I grew up with a, a very charismatic mother and charisma in the Greek just means gift, right? Like she was a woman that was gifted in so many ways. But I also love the English translation that it's a big personality because she was also that. And she just really passed along the message to me that I could trust myself, that I could trust the desires that I came built with, um, and that I was inherently pleasing to God. My dad, who was Catholic, was the reason that we were going to um, the Catholic Church and getting our first communion and going through the catechism. Um, he taught me some good things too about ritual um, and what it means to practice religion and spirituality when you don't feel like it. But I think the confluence of those two faiths um, and those two different approaches to the Christian faith 
is what made me really investigate my desire or really in my case, my lack of desire for children. And I think I just sort of assumed I'd have them as a lot of young people do. I mean, the script is pretty clear for a lot of kiddos um, that you grow up and people sort of say to you when you become a parent rather than if you become a parent, there are all these like subtle cues, right? That we get that this is something that's going to happen to us if not perhaps with us in the future. And as I started getting those messages, I think every time they landed, I felt like, "Mm, I don't know if that's something that I have all that much animation around. I think about even like playing with dolls. I don't know if you all have heard this, that like people, people say people can be good mothers or not based on like if they were into dolls or not. Like, oh, I never played with dolls, so I didn't want a mother. I mean, I freaking love dolls, but I wanted to like name them like they were titles to a book. I wanted to organize them like there were ideas. I wanted to instruct them like I was passing along knowledge, right? Like so many of the things I had been told were true were only true if you didn't look beneath the surface at the actual clues of my life. And so it came to be that when I got older and I met my person much younger than I would have preferred, I met him at 18 and we got married young at 22. I felt by then I already sort of knew, like I'm, I'm doing the mental math and there's nothing about becoming a biological parent that feels like it squares with how God made me. And there's nothing about being a biological parent that seems compelled by the, by the way I'm reading Christian scripture. And so I had him agree to marry me on the premise that we would never have children. That is definitely a, that's a strong premise to get married on. Um, I think that's interesting too, because I think especially nowadays as the world gets busier and busier, less people are kind of looking to have kids or even, you know, get married. Um, what was kind of, you know, you're talking about how that doesn't quite fit into the narrative, the Christian narrative of, well, you know, you get married, you have kids, you have this kind of family unit. And so how did that kind of affect you and your, and your spirituality? I don't think I realized the stigma that existed for childless or child-free women until I unexpectedly became a mother at 31. So this is a pretty important part of the story. We, my husband and I, I don't know when we started using this phrase, but I think it was in an effort to sort of reclaim the goodness of our lives. We gave our marriage a title. We gave our marriage a calling um, and we said, we are child free for the common good. We think this is a calling, not totally unlike the priesthood, where you abstain from having a biological family of your own so that you are available to the worldwide family of God. And I can't imagine we would have done that if we hadn't thought people were judging our lives as not spiritually mature or judging our marriage as quote fruitless or feeling sad for us that we were sort of missing out on the ultimate joy. Um, I've often heard people describe children as the greatest accomplishment a couple can share. I can't imagine we would have come up with that title. 
if we didn't feel like we needed to justify that our lives and our decision weren't just made flippantly and weren't just freedom from something. So weren't just, hey, I don't like children, so I'm going to go do X, Y, and Z, but no, freedom for something. And I think part of that ties back into what you were saying, that it seemed pretty hard to have a modern life in which two people had other callings. I felt like mine was always to write. My husband is a youth pastor, so he felt like his was working with youth in the church. It felt pretty hard to do that and be a parent with all of the pressures that American parents now face. I mean, it is unprecedented the amount of hours um, both blue collar and white collar Americans are working. And on top of that, both moms and dads are more involved in their children's lives than ever before. And I think we sort of saw that writing on the wall that like everyone was trying to be a perfectionist about everything. And it was really overwhelming. So how could this space that we created, not just in our lives, but in our homes, and not just in our homes, but in our bodies, create new life in a different way than had been expected of us? I feel like that's a really freeing idea too. I mean, personally for me, I came from more of like an abnormal parental background. My grandparents raised me and you know, my, they're more my mom and dad figure. Um, and then also too, later on in my early adulthood, becoming a Christian. And I think seeing the families around you, there's very much this stigma around like what makes a good Christian family <laughs> that you have a mom and a dad and like, here's these perfect kids who all go to church and things like that. Um, from your perspective, where have you seen the pressure that, you know, young women face within the church to get married and have kids? And how often do you think a lot of women kind of jump into those decisions without maybe even wanting to make that decision? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how often people make that decision and regret it or make that decision and make do with it. That's probably more common. Or it isn't a decision at all, right? Like we also have to acknowledge that when we talk about mothering, um, that it really is a privilege to be able to make a decision at all. Um, but I do know that there is a growing Facebook group on I Regret Having Children. <laughs> um, and I do know, right, the statistics about how parents are putting in even more time at work and home than they have been in centuries past, in decades past. So I think it's really common um, for people to have these expectations for their lives that are fueled by an American progress narrative, that these are the marks of adulthood. I mean, in that script of marriage and children, you could also put owning a house. You could also put going to college. Um, right? You could put so many things, having a retirement account um, that were these vestiges of the American dream, but only for a small population. Um, 
and how dangerous it is to lift up scripts that are not spiritual scripts, um, but are more closely aligned with like nationalism. Um, so much of the anxiety over the declining birth rate, if you've read the columns, have to do with like a new generation of taxpayers that's going to be missing or have to do with the browning of America or have to do with um, a depleted military base or to put the Christian stamp on it, have to do with the fact that the church in the global South is growing at much greater rates than the church in North America is, or that other faiths are growing much larger than Christianity is because of the way birth rate and religious conversion are aligned. And so there is a lot of anxiety that women get, not just from the church, but also from a nationalism, an American exceptionalism that says this is the best way to be an American and this is also the best way to be a woman. You kind of briefly started to talk about it, but so you and your husband come to this conclusion about what your 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 what you are going to do at this time now that you're not going to have biological children. Could you kind of elaborate where you and your husband are at now with that? Yes, I know. I didn't finish the punchline, which is like why are we parenting now? Um yeah, so child-free for the common good, right? We think this is a really spiffy title to give our life meaning when it feels like no one else will. And we realize that our home is the place where the most meaningful things happen for us, both of us. We're homebodies, we're introverts. At the end of the day, everything we tried to do outside of our home that was, quote, altruistic, just felt really thin showing up at a homeless overnight or serving soup at a soup kitchen um, or even going to a protest. Like these are important things to do, but every time we would do them and come home, we would feel like we didn't actually change as people, uh, nor did we feel like perhaps the people we were there to quote serve were any different before we left. Uh, and so it just felt really thin. And what is so compelling to me and so mysterious to me about the claim of Christianity is that Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. And we liked our lives, but we felt like there was a depth that we were missing. Um, and I want to be really careful to say that I don't think everyone who's childless or child-free is missing that depth, but we felt like we were missing that depth. We felt like we were pretty comfortable and we felt like our lives were pretty curated. And as our friends, this is probably in our late twenties, early thirties, started having families of their own and going inward for a time into their own domestic spaces, we were like, well, good grief. If they're not willing to make chosen family with us, who is? How can we kind of have these relationships that make us different than when we started? Um, where is this abundant life to be found? And the way we read our scriptures is, oh, it's, it's to be found with widows. Oh, it's, it's probably to be found with orphans, not as a means of service, 
but as a means of like, there is something about um, relationship with people who live with their need on their sleeve that, that is going to teach you something about what we're all really here for. Um, and so that also feels like an important thing to say when we started fostering, which is how we got started as parents, it was not because we wanted to save anybody. It was because we needed saving, um, that our lives had become a little thin and a little more scheduled and a little more whitewashed than we wanted them to be. So we sign up for this fostering class. Um, again, everyone's like, why, what you don't like children like, aren't your thing. And I'm like, yeah, I think I thought like 90% of it was like co-parenting with the adults. And I, I just think I got that ratio mixed up. So I was so excited to like interface with social workers and learn more about like the guardian and litem and court system and work with teachers. Um, and like, be like, what is all this public school advocacy about? Like, I want to be involved in that. Um, get up with therapists. Like what's the latest on human development? Like I'm a learner. I'm a researcher. Like I was like, here's this whole field that I know nothing about. And it turns out when we started fostering, right? Like the percentages are flipped. 90% of it is parenting and 10% of it is interfacing with these adults doing creative, amazing things in the community. Um, and so really um, we thought we would be great foster parents. Everything that other people had sort of razzed us about in our child-free life, the desire to sleep late, the desire to not have long-term commitments, um, the desire to, um, I don't know, be able to talk to your children right away was sort of solved by fostering. And we decided to foster older kids, right? Like we were like, we don't have interest in babies. It feels like there's a need for older kids. And we actually think that's what would we, we'd be really good at. Um, and it was just really cool to see all of these deficits that other people had looked at us and perhaps seen. Felt like, okay, here's something that they can really be put to use in. Um, and we, we hoped we could have just stayed fostering. Um, we really did. Um, but that was not the case. And our girls, three of them, three girls came to us as our first foster placement um, and never left. Um, their parents' rights were terminated much quicker than we expected. Um, and we were given the choice to say yes to housing them permanently um, or helping them find, quote, forever homes. Um, and that's a longer story, but we did a Quaker discernment circle. Uh, and just were more compelled by the yes than the no. And so now we have three girls, 14, 12, and 10. Um, and we still co-parent with their biological family. So even though their rights were terminated, it's up to the adopted parents and open adoptions if they want to continue a relationship. And that felt very important to us. So we are still doing that. Um, that parenting looks very different than anyone told me it would. And even the role of mother that people are very excited about that I am doing now, um, I still feel like takes a lot of reframing. I mean, that's gotta be a pretty big hit on, on just your brain and all the senses of going from no kids uh, to then three kind of all at once, it sounds like. 
Um, what was kind of the relationship between that kind of, um, you know, you're, you said you're feeling thin and taking that relationship between, you know, you're filling yourself up by being able to help them out, but also kind of, I'm guessing the becoming tired or, you know, maybe did you get tired out by also, you know, you're being filled up by, but, but by also now taking care of and raising these three children? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I still tell people like parenting is not my jam. Like it wasn't like I started parenting and then I was like, oh, this, this is great. Um, at first it was really great to go to bed exhausted every night and to not have the sort of mental tape that I typically live with that is like, here are all the things you said today that were wrong. Here are all the things you did today that hurt people. Here are all the things you will need to take back tomorrow. That's just sort of like a reoccurring thing that I live with. I didn't have that for like two to three months when we were fostering because literally the only goal was to like comb lice out of their hair that night um, or get their cavities filled the next day. Like there were so many physical needs at first and so many appointments at first and so many things to occupy my mind. It was really satisfying. Um, it sort of felt like being like the CEO of a family, um, rather than like the nurturing figure of a family. And I thrive on that. I thrive on tasks. I thrive on being able to check things off a list. The much harder part has been after we adopted them and sort of all of the stress and all of the newness and all of the like high-fiving that we kept them alive was over. And then it was like, okay, now, now how do we want to be parents in the world? And we don't want to make it our full-time gig. And I don't want to make it the locus of my identity. But I never want them to feel not chosen, especially because of their origin story. You mentioned that you kind of have more of an open adoption for you kind of then going from just being a foster parent to then more of a like full time, you know, these three girls, almost teenagers are now living in your house. How do you navigate just your relationship with them while also still being very open and honest about obviously their biological parents? Because um, I know just for me, I had a very similar situation growing up and I think when you're a kid, that can be really hard to, to balance, you know, the both sides of it, where you've got your kind of full-time parents, but then also your biological parents. What's, how do you kind of balance that? That's a great question. I'm always quick to tell people they don't call me mom. And I love that. I really like my first name and I really don't want to be identified by a reproductive role over my human one. Maybe it would have been different if I had biological kids, but it feels like a real sweet grace that I'm Aaron and my husband is Rush and their mom is mommy. They would define it as they have two moms now, they have two dads now. So they will describe us that way to other people, um, but those are not our names. Um, and I don't know if that'll ever change. Like I said, we're still fairly new to one another. We've been together as a family for four and a half years. Um, but that feels really good 
feels really good to share parenting. And so it's hard for me to understand people. It's hard for me to understand people who really want and prioritize children of their own. I don't exactly know what that means. Um, I feel like all parenting is shared parenting to different degrees. Um, and for some reason, it feels like more of a team sport to be doing it with a larger group of people. Feels like it takes the pressure off any individual performance and is like, hey, we've all contributed to who this person's going to be. People often compliment us, oh, your girls are so well behaved. And I was like, yeah, they're, uh, they came that way. I really, I really appreciate whatever happened before they arrived in our home. And I also want you to notice that like compliance is probably a trauma response. So I would love it if they fought back a little more. I relish the day they swear at me, um, right? Like they're, it's complicated. Um, shared parenting is very complicated, but it sort of feels like the order of the universe. Um, people that say I could never do that. I could never like relinquish control. I'm like, that's, that's the project, baby. Like that's the human project. We're all relinquishing love and we're all relinquishing our ability to curate people. Um, and so maybe it just feels better for me to be doing it so much more obviously than other people. Um, because my expectations are realistic. Rush and I always talk about it. I bet you one of the three will move home after they turn 18. So saying that out loud sometimes makes it, maybe makes the heartbreak hurt a little less. I don't know. But I just know I couldn't imagine parenting another way. And it sounds crass, but sometimes I feel like what we've got here is the greatest life hack of all time for us, that we get to be a part of a family, um, a family much different than ours, but we are not fully responsible for it. And we don't feel like the weight of the world is on our shoulders. I think that's a really good point. I feel like even families maybe a more stereotypical family you know mom dad couple kids or something like that could learn from that in the sense of accepting help from others with their kids like close friends or something you know what do you what do you think the advantages of that could be for people mm. yeah I don't know why people wouldn't want more help um I think one of the greatest things about fostering to adopt for us. And again, there's so much stigma around it. There's the assumption that if you're fostering to adopt, you couldn't have biological children. So it's like a backup plan. Um, there's the assumption that you never know what you're going to get, which is the same with biological children. So for some reason, right, we think fostering and adoption is a much more risky enterprise, but it's all risky. None of it's promised to us. I feel like what was so beautiful about it for us is that it came with all of these built-in support systems that I wish biological parents had too. And not just the support systems, but like financial support for those support systems. So every child came with guaranteed therapy. That would be amazing if every parent knew they had access to therapy for their children if they needed it, 
right? Every child came with uh, Medicaid. So our children are still on Medicaid. Um, it sort of feels like we are living with like Sweden's pro-family policies in America. And I don't know if people know that like when you adopt older children or when you adopt sort of at risk, I don't know if that's what they would call it. Um, the fact that we adopted uh, a minority, our girls are Mexican-American. Um, and the fact that we adopted three of them, like all of that sort of went to okay, so here's the amount of assistance we're going to provide you, which is for a lot of people tacky to talk about. But I think people assume that fostering and adoption is very expensive and very prohibitive um, and very unpredictable. Um, but so is biological parenting. And, and I just think that there is so much to learn from the built-in economic support and governmental support that has made parenting possible for us. And I could not imagine doing it any other way, except for in France or in Sweden. I think you bring up a really good point there. And I think especially now, like just as things kind of in our culture are shifting, and I know Ashton mentioned that earlier on, I think more and more people are just becoming less stoked on the idea of having children because of the financial situations. And I mean, it's, it's hard enough to own a home now, let alone imagine, imagine having two kids that you have to put through college. Um, I, I think it's just, it's a big burden to, to have, you know, whether you have the desire to have children or not. I think this episode is just coming at such a good time. Obviously Mother's Day is coming up here on Sunday. I'm so curious to know just like your perspective, you know, oftentimes mother, Mother's Day is a pretty difficult day and holiday for lots of people. What's kind of your perspective on the day and how might you be celebrating or how do you acknowledge the day? That's a great question. Can I ask you how you celebrate the day first? Because it sounds like you have a complicated yeah. parenting story. Yeah. Mother's Day and Father's Day is always a weird time. Mother's Day is a lot more odd or abnormal. I, I, I don't like to say abnormal, but compared to the, the typical family structure, I was, my grandparents took me in at the age of three. Uh, my mom was a meth addict, you know, in and out of prison my whole life. So my grandparents, uh, my father's parents took me in and they raised me. They took me to sports, put me through college, like pretty much anything a typical biological parent structure would do. So, but what's interesting about that is I knew my biological parents and still had some contact with them. So kind of similar to, um, you know, your three girls, I call my grandparents, grandma and grandpa. Um, I never wanted to be adopted. So they had legal guardianship. Uh, I just didn't feel it was necessary to be adopted because I knew who my real parents were. Um, or at least biological parents. So Mother's Day, pretty much I, I celebrate my, my grandma. Uh, but in our family, Grandparents' Day is a lot bigger of a deal. That's kind of when we combine both Mother's Day and Father's Day. When is Grandparents' Day? It's in September. The date changes, but it's usually like the first week of September. What about you, Ashton? How do you celebrate Mother's Day? Well, I'm, <clears throat> I don't, I've never celebrated Mother's Day. Um, growing up a witness, uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't celebrate any holidays, including mother or father's day. And then, um, 
being out of a witness, both my parents shun me and I don't, you know, I don't have any contact with them. Um, but I will say what I have learned um, is definitely, I've learned so much from Allison's grandparents and her experience with them. And I think that has created a lot of beauty in a pretty hard area of life, kind of seeing, I think they raised her with some extremely healthy values in the freedom to choose with spirituality and such. Her uh, grandfather, they've both also been extremely kind to me, um, but her you know, grandfather's very much helping her stay goal-oriented, seeing her grandmother show her a lot of love and affection no matter what kind of direction Allison wants to go. And I think that is just a great example of raising somebody and especially seeing how it's affected Allison and on Mother's Day, kind of how she commemorates and Jeannie, her grandmother, and what she's done for Allison has been a really beautiful thing to watch. Yeah, I like that. I am a huge fan of mother as a verb rather than noun that can be appropriated by biological parents or non-biological parents that can be appropriated by men or women or people that identify as neither um, that can be appropriated by God. So in Christian scripture, Jesus uses a metaphor to describe himself as a mother hen. It feels like all of that gives license for mothering to be an activity in the world um, rather than a status symbol. And so Mother's Day itself, um, I've been nerding out on some of the research, was actually started by a childless woman um, in 1908 to honor her mother's advocacy on behalf of women and children, but also to um, kind of correct some of the imbalance uh, in our holidays that were more male-centric. So I love... um, the holiday's origins and her sort of original thinking was that you might visit a mother or a mother figure, or you might visit a mother church. So like many things in America, it did have some like Christian um, undertones, but as the holiday became nationalized and then later consumerized, she became so jaded with it that by the time that she died, she went nearly bankrupt trying to lobby to cut it from our calendars which I just think is hilarious because uh, it's true, right? Like what even are we doing anymore um, on Mother's Day? It just, it feels really thin. It feels like another way of dividing women with children from women without. Um, it feels really binary that we have Mother's Day, then Father's Day. And really what it all leads to is sort of what I call maternal exceptionalism, this idea that mothers are more holy or virtuous or moral than others, not just women without children, but men, right? Um, and I think anytime you valorize one group of people over another, even though you think you're celebrating them, you're actually, I think, in the end, being more patronizing. Um, and not really seeing that um, everyone has light and shadow in them. Um, and every calling can be used for good or ill. Um, and that there is no blanket summation that motherhood needs to be, nor should it be, any woman's highest calling. It's a calling that is as valuable as others 
and can be as beautiful as others, but is not an unequivocal good or virtue. And, and I really hope that that message is liberating, not just to women without children that I think often feel confused around the holiday about whether they want to be included as spiritual mothers or they want to be thanked for like mothering the world, which can sometimes feel like a consolation prize. Um, I hope that message is also freeing to mothers because I think what's really clear with the current state of motherhood is that valorizing it has made it impossible to suck at. And women are trying so hard to be so good at everything that it's killing us. And I think the valorization of motherhood is part of that. But if they just got to be like humans trying to do human verbs, it would be a lot more life-giving for everyone. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I also feel like that ties very much in, you know, even beyond Christianity, I think for a lot of religions, it's the woman's ultimate you know, trophy or ultimate status to be able to reproduce and be a mom. I mean, um, you know, we, we just got done recording an episode with two Mormons, you know, and you think about how family is so central to that religion. And, and I can't even imagine how heartbreaking it would be to be a Mormon woman and either not be able to have children or choose not to have children. And I think that's across pretty much every religion. I think this pressure women feel to live up to that expectation. And I think also to maybe not disappoint their partner, you know, if their partner does want children. And so what would you say, you know, to women who are struggling with that? I would say that there are limitless ways to love to your limit. And by that, I mean, I think what people respond to about parenting, like what makes it so fulfilling for so many people is that it gives them a really obvious purpose and a purpose that's really validated by our politics and really validated by our culture and really validated by our religions. But most research has shown that it's the purpose and the sense of purpose that makes for happiness, not what it's oriented to. And so I would say like, find your purpose. Um, Purpose equals happiness, not parenting. And for some people, parenting is purpose. But for you, it might not be. And everyone has a calling. Everyone has something within them that they feel like they were born to do. Um, Howard Thurman calls it the sound of the genuine in you. He was a Black Christian mystic that talked a lot about the importance of people getting quiet enough and still enough to actually listen to their bodies and the voice of God speaking through them to say, what is it that you are uniquely made for? He called it your unique and essential idiom. Can you get quiet enough to listen to that? Because if you can't, he says, you'll spend the whole rest of your life on the ends of strings that somebody else pulls. And I just think too many of us are on the ends of strings that somebody else pulls, um, that we are making decisions based on whether or not we think it will make other people happy or whether or not it will get this many likes on Facebook. That shows my age. Or Instagram or TikTok. Um, Rather than like, is this actually the thing that lights me up inside? Is this actually the thing that I feel called to do? And of course, any person of faith or non-faith has a moral system by which they bound that question, right? So Christians would say, we are called by God to have a purpose, but 
depending on how I read scripture, I'm going to think there's a greater field of play for that calling than not. So that's everyone's prerogative to kind of answer that question. What's in the parameter of a God-given purpose? And then how do you listen for it? How do you block out the other voices and get really curious about your life, paying attention to it and the clues it has to offer you? I think that's a really powerful point. Uh, it's growing up. Uh, this reminds me growing up the, uh, there's often this idea of you're trying to have this such a shiny exterior because you have these expectations and it can work so hard to having, you know, this perfect mother figure. And also I think men, when in a faith situation, have that pressure of being the head of their household. That's often put into Christian faiths, you know, and, and then they have to have also have this, you know, perfect children that are also, so you're working so hard to have this shiny figure on the outside, but on the inside, things can really start to crumble. And I think, families can face a lot of pain because of that. I mean, what would, I think your example is a great thing to look at for those kinds of families. What would be your advice to people who are feeling that that might want to escape that uh, situation? I'm going to totally rip this phrase from an interview I just heard with Glennon Doyle, where she encourages mothers to be models, not martyrs. And I think that's so important for any person of faith or spirituality who has something in them that wants to do something spiritually significant. And sometimes that can get twisted into doing things they think are more spiritually spectacular than others. And for every human to remember that it's more important to be a model for how you want humans to be in the world than a martyr that you can actually consider what is a good way of living in the world and can I model that faithfully for my people rather than thinking I have to sacrifice my sense of self for them. Um, there has been a lot of harm done in the name of American Christianity with this idea of redemptive suffering that Jesus suffered on a cross and therefore if you also take up your cross and follow Jesus, your suffering is good and will be made but be made good by God. And I think that is a complicated message that I think compromises the true crux of Christianity, which is that like no Jesus didn't come to teach us about redemptive suffering, he came to teach us about redemptive living. Um but we get really confused sometimes about the suffering that is a natural part of being human. And the suffering sometimes we choose because we think it's what others want from us or expect from us or need from us. So it requires a lot of discernment, these questions of purpose. I think they are best done in community with other people that know you and care about you um, and are also done with, I'm going to say this as a nerdy researcher, like texts, like voices from other eras and even traditions if you're open to that, right? Um, that have something to say about how they discerned what it was that they felt called to do and what it was that they felt made for. And I think that's what's so cool about what y'all are doing on this podcast is when you hear people's stories of faith, you also are hearing their stories of purpose and how they're making sense of what they're doing, what the human project is. And I think being faithful to that question rather than sort of living your life in service of other people's questions is actually the more important part. 
And I always point people to like, well, I think which, which is one of like the most badass scripture verses in all of Christian scripture, where Jesus basically says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down because I choose to, right? Like when we decide to lay our lives down for someone else, it's because we have human agency. It's not because we're doing it out of some compulsory need to be liked or appreciated or celebrated. So I hope that's empowering for people to consider that your questions matter, that your agency is really important, and that not all suffering is equal. Yeah. Maybe this question's like totally in left field, but I am interested how you, you know, also part of just parenting and especially just in a religious context is so much of how like instilling spirituality on your children, you know, we see that a lot. And I think what ends up happening, um, you know, and I can't speak for all religions, but at least within like the Christian church, it's this idea that parents have so much pressure to like make their child, like Ashton was talking about, like the best Christian person that they can be. Uh, I'm interested to know just kind of your personal opinion on that. And also how are you kind of navigating spirituality with um, now being a parent? At this point, I'm more concerned that my girls know that sex equals consent than they know sex equals marriage. Um, I'm lucky in that my husband is a youth pastor. So in some ways, uh, I feel like he gets the, the privilege of thinking about youth development and getting to kind of wear both hats with our girls, which is hard, I'm sure, for him. Um, but it's nice for me knowing that I'm sending them <laughs> to a youth group, <laughs> that like I know the theology coming down, um, and it is theology I can get behind. Um, and it is theology that's not unnecessarily putting them into gender roles, and it's not theology that is giving them answers, but is teaching them questions. Um, that feels really good. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be a parent who, who didn't have that much confidence um, in a youth leader or a youth program. Um, what I try to instill um, is, yeah, more of like, what does it mean to be uh, a woman who has agency over her own body in this world? Um, and some of that's cheeky, like, Growing up Catholic, the Our Father prayer was very important in our family. We prayed it often. We prayed it in church. It's a prayer that when Jesus' followers ask him how to pray, he prays, Our Father who art in heaven. Um, I've just always taught it to my girls as the Our Mother prayer. And sometimes they pray it in public, and I don't think they have any idea that it's not what people expect to come out of their mouth, which I take like such great delight in and feel like maybe I'm not preparing them for the patriarchal world. Um, but it feels like that's more important to me um, to, to teach them how to improvise faith and do it in a way that's really empowering of their, their female bodies and their female experiences. And I'm really honest with them about our parenting choices um, I say things like I could never imagine giving birth. I never wanted to imagine being pregnant. Um, this is the only way I would have parented. If it was anyone but you, we wouldn't have said yes. 
Um, and so it's funny too to hear them say things like, well, I think maybe I'll adopt kids. Or I don't know if I have kids, right? And I'm like, hey, I just love that, like, you know, this isn't a given. Um, and that feels like um, a spiritual gift in and of itself. And I also, I think I have a lot of my mother's spirit in me that I really want to teach them that, like, they have everything they need within. And so while it's really important to learn from other people and study and um, be curious um, about historical context and other religions and all sorts of things, um, that it's not a performance, that faith is not a performance, um, and that they can go to bed and just be like, hey, God, hey, Jackie, what's up? I don't feel great about my thighs today, you know, which is what Jackie's doesn't feel great about right now. Um, that feels like the spiritual work we're doing right now. And that feels like a part of parenting I like. Um, that feels probably one of the more creative parts of parenting. I guess another left field kind of question. For the people, I think it's really interesting because through your experience, you've kind of jumped onto the same ship as the people that don't have the choice of having kids and kind of the struggle that they have to have with that, whether it's with faith or whether it's personal um, feelings of maybe of inadequacy or, you know, whatever they're feeling. If you're able to, you know, talk to those people, um, I'm sure you have talked to some, <laughs> to some um, what would you, what would you say to them and what would you hope that they could really learn from your experience and your journey? Hmm. I will tell you what my childless female pastor told me. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Hard stop. It's a scripture verse that comes from the prophet Isaiah. Um, but I believe it's also quoted elsewhere in the New Testament. I'm Catholic, so we weren't <laughs> trained to memorize Bible verses. Um, yeah, but how beautiful is the feat of the one who brings good news? Hard stop. Not also if you have children. Not also if you perform bibbidi-bibbidi-bop. Not also if you get straight A's. Not also if you are successful. Not also if you are beautiful. Your life is good news if you are bringing good news to people, right? Like if you are living goodness, whatever that means, like how beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of people who bring good news with their life? Um, I'd start there. And then I would say if you really want to nerd out, Orthodox Christianity, like really going back to the church fathers, has so much good stuff for the childless. Now, I will say it was often like the privileged men childless club, but I don't see why childless women can't also appropriate the fact that like childlessness was seen as a way of being like having heightened religiosity. Okay, so you're childless. You have a lot more time to do your own work and have mystical experiences um, and create space for the holy to become a stranger in your house. Like, what magic is there with all of that space you can create in your body and in your life and in your home? 
Like who knows what unexpected visitor from on high might visit you, right? Like it really was considered uh, a more blessed state than being married. I read the Apostle Paul's words on marriage to be like, ugh, if you have to do it, do it, right? But if you can remain single, if you can remain without children, like what a, what a divine life you will lead. And further, like Christians believe, again, Orthodox Christianity has long believed that the afterlife, no one's going to be married. No one's going to have children. No fertility, no infertility. And so really like people who are already living that way are a sign of like heaven in the here and now. And I know it doesn't feel like that. And maybe hearing that you're like, great, but like no one else thinks that. Yeah, that's tough. Um, There's nothing getting over like the social stigma of what it's like to like have to go to another baby shower um, and answer questions about do you have kids or not. But there is such beautiful support for the childless life in Christian scripture if we would only look and read and again discern how many of the messages we've gotten are actually scriptural and how many of them are just like Americanism that says here are the things that have served us as a country to tell women that they're good at and that they're made for Rather than like, here are the ways in which like Jesus is trying to constitute an entirely new family that has nothing to do with biology. And in fact, like the more you read Jesus's words, he's like very harsh towards biological families. (laughs) So I just, I don't, I don't know how we ever got to a place where family values became synonymous with American Christianity, but it is the biggest bullshit of all time. Um, and I do know because it had political power and political motives, but that's what I would tell women who are childless, who feel like there's a real grief. Um, one, if there is a real grief, yeah, grieve it. I don't know what that's like to like desire children in a particular way and have that not happen, but I do know what it's like to plan for a life that didn't turn out the way I thought it would. And I still want to believe that there's beauty to anyone who's trying to put more goodness in this world than they are taking from it. Wow, that's uh, that's good stuff. I, I feel like that's such a perspective that I is I have not heard as much of, which I think is really it's really freeing. Um, to kind of start wrapping it up, I guess maybe maybe you did answer the question, but if there's one thing. You would hope listeners take away from your personal story, uh, whether they be Christian or not Christian, uh, what would that be? You're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you for not having children, for not wanting children, or not centering children. that we are souls before we are reproductive roles. And so it does not mean that there is no discernment to be done about why those are things you don't have want or center, um, how it came to be that you don't have want or center those things. 
but just because children aren't in your life in a particular way doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Doesn't mean your life isn't good news. Doesn't mean you can't also love to your limit. And I love saying love to your limit and not have a limitless love because I think we're all limited. <laughs> I think, again, that's part, part and parcel of the human project is limitations. And the goal is not to have and do it all, but the goal is to find what you can do and then ask for help, right? Whether it's from your community or whether it's from your God to say, here's where I end and here's where the miracle steps in. Here's where the community steps in. Here's where the grace, the stuff that I didn't earn or perform or curate comes in. Um, and human existence is a little bit of both, right? Figuring out what you want and then matching it with what's possible, what your limitations are, and seeing those not as something that is damning you. Um, but it's just something that reveals the human in you. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your experience and I really hope uh, with, with everybody, all the listeners. Um, where could people, you know, read your work and find you on social media or kind of just keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, so I'm on social media at Hey Aaron Lane. On Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, um, I'm recently hired a social media consultant because it gives me great anxiety. Again, going back to the ticker tape, I just want everyone on social media to know that it is normal if you go to bed at night thinking about your posts. And I also believe we can live a better life. Um, so that's where you can find me. Also, uh, the best way to keep up with kind of what's happening in the book writing process uh, and some kind of early in process thoughts on these things is my newsletter, which is called Good For You News. Again, the idea that we can all bring good news with our lives to one another and to the world. It's on Substack. You can find me there. And you can also go to my website, erinslane.com. Well, we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of What the Faith. We know for us, we really, really enjoyed hearing Aaron's story and learning all about off-script mothering. If you would like to stay up to date with everything we're doing at What the Faith, make sure to subscribe to our email list. You will be able to subscribe over on our, at our website. Just go to whatthefaith.space and you will find our website and a place to sign up for our email list. Once again, that's whatthefaith.space. Thank you so much for tuning in and see you next week.